1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: So here he is in that environment, somehow survives, and plays an important role in extricating the U.S. from Vietnam. And again, I mean, go chapter, chapter, chapter. So the fact that he appreciated uh, the U.S. and the opportunities that that had provided to him, and is kind of in that sense a model of what you would hope, you know, people in the world can grow up to be in in an American dream, I think is a piece of him that's largely missed out partly by the fact that he's. You know, celebrated uh, or criticized, or that he appears to be kind of always having been Henry Kissinger, as opposed to having been the result of this series of of successful lotteries.
3: I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December eight, two thousand twenty-three. Last week, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger passed away. To assess his legacy. I sat down with Graham Allison, the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University. Allison knew Kissinger well. He first met Kissinger in 1965 when he was a student in Kissinger's class at Harvard. And Allison worked with Kissinger for decades, right up until the end of Kissinger's life, when he and Kissinger co-authored an essay published in October on arms control for artificial intelligence, perhaps Kissinger's last essay. Allison and I discussed Kissinger's accomplishments as a statesman, His cast of mind and long intellectual productivity, his engagement with history as a guide to international diplomacy, and his particular brand of realism. We also discussed Kissinger's failures and mistakes, and what Kissinger was most worried about at the end of his life. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 8th. Graham Allison on Henry Kissinger. The reaction to Henry Kissinger's death has been remarkably but unsurprisingly polarized. Graham, you're on the admiring side. You've known and worked with Kissinger beginning in 1965, when you were a student in his class at Harvard, right up until the end of his life, when you and Kissinger co-authored an essay published just two months ago on arms control for artificial intelligence, which may, I assume, be Kissinger's last essay. So my first question is, what is your assessment of Kissinger's long and very consequential life?
2: Well, I, I could give you a long answer, a short answer. Let me start with short. I would say an amazing life, an amazing mind, an amazing statesman, and uh, an amazing professor through throughout his life, and I, fortunately for me, in the last couple of decades of his life, an amazing uh, colleague and, and friend. So, I think that the accolades uh, as well as the criticisms that we've heard since his passing taken all together still remind us that I mean this is a century <laughs> of a life almost unlike any other one we've uh, we've seen in in the story of american history yeah.
3: so let's let me ask you about each one of those let's start with kissinger as statesman he had so many accomplishments. I mean, what would you say were the most consequential or important ones?
2: Well, I, I think the litany that's been cited uh, is, is, uh, is, is appropriate. But if I try to, again, be succinct in the piece that he and I co-authored that you mentioned in Foreign Affairs just a couple of months ago, uh, we had three numbers that I think is a good summary, 79, 79, and 9. And uh, most people don't know what those numbers are the answer to, but the answer to the 79 is the answer to the question, how, how long has it been since a great power war? So we're just entered in September, the 79th year without great power war. Historically unprecedented accomplishment, uh, not an accident, uh, not uh, stable or to be taken for granted, uh, not likely to be sustained for another generation. So we've never seen anything like that. That's that's in Henry's terms kind of world or, or international security order. Uh, secondly, 79, 79 years without another use of nuclear weapons in war. So if you had been taking bets in 1945 or 50 about – when would there be another great power war? Excuse me, there had just been an intermission of uh, two decades between World War I and World War II. You would have got a hundred to one, maybe even a thousand to one odds against 78 years and entering a 79th year without great power war. You would have got ten thousand to one odds against any use of nuclear weapons for the next almost eight decades. Again, an amazing accomplishment. Of nuclear statecraft, I would say, in which Henry played an important part, and then finding nine is the number of nuclear weapon states. As late as President Kennedy, he was expecting you would have twenty-five or thirty nuclear weapon states by the nineteen seventies. In fact, today that there's only nine is not an didn't happen by accident. This is a result of a huge undertaking by American statesmen. Republicans and Democrats, starting in the Kennedy administration, that we now know as the nonproliferation Regime, but again, a very amazing accomplishment, uh, not to be taken for granted, uh, quite fragile, not likely, not likely to be sustainable. Uh, so, in Henry's terms, he thought the overriding objective or the the primary objective was trying to build a world without uh, great power wars and without the atrocities of Nazism that he had, his, had escaped as a youth. And I think he played a very important part in the fact that we're now entering this 79th year without great power war and with our, without anybody hardly noticing.
3: <laughs> so let me just ask you, um, I want to, follow up on, on all of that quickly. What did Kissinger do in his eight years in government service? I think it was eight years. And and after or before, I mean, what are, what, how did he contribute to the remarkable fact of no great power war in eight decades? What were his central accomplishments there?
2: Well, again, you could drill down in great detail, but I would say start with uh, the evolution of Americans' understanding of how to keep the Cold War cold. So a big part of why that was not World War III was that somehow over time uh, statesmen came to understand that, particularly as the nuclear arsenals of both the U.S. and the Soviet Union became so robust, that there would have to be a war in the sense of struggle in every dimension – but it would have to be cold war, cold meaning not use of bombs and bullets against each other. Uh, We had a number of close calls, but uh, the evolution that occurred, not simply as a result of Henry, but to which he made a significant contribution in the uh, Nixon and Ford administrations to a relationship that came to be called detente, and even then the Helsinki Accords, and a normalization of a a, a fierce competition that continued right through to ultimate victory in the Cold War, but again, without use of bombs and bullets. In the establishment of a relationship with China, and the, again, attempt to create a framework for a rivalry or competition between the U.S. and China, but also one within constraints that would not lead to war. That, again, was part of what he was about in figuring out how it would be possible for the U.S. and China to live with a Taiwan in which they had irreconcilable differences. China, confident that Taiwan was an integral part of China, and had to be reintegrated under Beijing's uh, rules and control and the U.S. intent that Taiwan should not be uh, reintegrated into China by force and should have an opportunity to pursue its own path, in effect, a self-governing entity that's emerged as a very vibrant market economy and democracy. So, irreconcilable differences… Henry understood was not did not mean they would be unmanageable, and in fact, the framework that was created in the Shanghai Communique and the follow-ons has allowed five decades in which, on both sides of the straits, people have seen greater increases in their well-being than in any equivalent five decades in their whole histories. And a challenge now going forward is to figure out a way to sustain that. So. Thirdly, if you take the nuclear space, he was one of the, I think, formative both thinkers and doers in in shaping a nuclear order in which nuclear weapons were not used. And ultimately, uh, as Reagan finally put it, a nuclear war cannot be won because we, would under- we came to understand at the end of the war, uh, both parties would have been destroyed and therefore must never be fought. Well, that's a huge therefore. So what does this do to the relations between two parties? It means that their rivalry, however fierce, has got nonetheless to be managed by levels of communication and even cooperation that prevent either incidents or accidents or third-party provocations dragging them into a war because, again, a nuclear war cannot be won. So Henry was one of the earlier first-generation people trying to think about nuclear weapons and think about them as they were integrated into policy. He was part of the Cambridge crowd. There were two two basically centers of gravity for thinking about the nuclear age. First was at Rand. I think that was the most important one. But secondly, here in Cambridge, the so-called... Uh, Harvard-MIT uh, arms control seminar that Henry was part of with Tom Schelling and Bill Kaufman and Mac Bundy and Carl Kazin and Paul Doty, where initially Henry, with his book in the 56 or '7, uh, was exploring and even advocating limited nuclear war which was a fashionable idea at the time, but over time came to understand a limited nuclear war was so likely to escalate to a general nuclear war that that was unacceptable. So he negotiated with Nixon the first ever arms control limitation to start the the SALT Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty and the ABM Treaty. And he thought that through those negotiations between the leaders of the U.S. and the Soviet Union, there would come to be, and there there did come to be, an understanding of the whole architecture of nuclear weapons and nuclear order, and ultimately the necessity of both parties to constrain uh, risks of misunderstandings and miscalculations that could lead to a nuclear war. So the whole structure of arms control, he was, I mean, he was the architect of the first arms control agreement so and i think in each of these realms to go back to the first proposition he he was he was about trying to build an international security order that allowed states that had quite sharp differences in views and values but but enough power to upset the international order to get entangled in something that would leave you short of World War III or of, you know, basically uh, nuclear disorder. On the AI piece, if you look at the AI article, actually what that's about, it's called the path to AI arms control, is how in the relationship between the U.S. and China as the two AI superpowers, they might try to learn lessons from the almost eight decades of construction of a nuclear security order to limit the most potentially catastrophic applications of AI in the period ahead.
3: Okay, let's talk about Kissinger's mind. How did you experience him as a thinker or as an intellectual? You've talked about it a little bit.
2: Henry would like to have thought of himself, and I I would think that he was – In the first instance, he came with a strategic point of view to issues as a strategist. And by a strategist, that meant not just in the American style, solving one problem after another. Americans like to think of ourselves and are as essentially problem solvers. Henry would try to stand back and say, well, let me see what's the larger problem here. What are its... Uh, dynamics, Uh, what are the drivers, what are the trend lines. So if you look at his book on China, you'll see in his description of uh, Sun Tzu and a Chinese perspective on international problems, an account that's actually also an account of the way he thought about Things and he got the two somewhat, or he combined the two of them. In which you start off by asking, What's the larger issue here? In which the what you see as a problem is actually just today's version of a world that existed a year ago, or five years ago, or a decade ago, and what you're going to do as an intervention that you think is the solution to the problem is only going to impact these dynamics in such a way that the circumstances that one will face a year from now or a decade from now will be different, but will nonetheless mainly be the same structural realities that you began with. So for example, In the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, analyzing uh, as best he could the dynamics of the situation, uh, he had two big ideas. One was that the Soviet Union was a spoiler and likely to make things worse, and there was an opportunity— to persuade the Egyptians who had been dependent on the Soviets to basically exclude the Soviet Union from the Middle East, and that if that could be accomplished, they would actually have no foothold in the Middle East. And that was accomplished. So that was a looking at the dynamics of the situation and saying, where is there an opportunity in it? Secondly, that and this was part of the good fortune of the evolution of Sadat, as he explains in his quite amazing chapter in his book on leaders, which is a book that he published just two, three years ago. He gives these profile of each leader. He got a great profile of Sadat. So with with Sadat as he came to understand them and with the Israeli politics as it had evolved after the Yom Kippur War, he saw that there was an opportunity to build a stable peace between Egypt and Israel, on the basis of trading land for peace, uh, but nonetheless in a way that would be stable and sustainable. And lo and behold, here we are, you know, five decades after, with all the uh, risks that there are in the current war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, but still with a very stable Egyptian uh, border, which was, I think, the most important contribution that could be made to Israel's security in the region. So I think the the mind that looks at things as a strategist, first trying to understand the dynamics of what's going on, and then secondly, the thing that he did almost uniquely well was have strategic imagination about possible interventions in situations that could make them not, not not to be resolved altogether but to be become be better and even better in a sustainable way so if you if you go back as i mentioned to the taiwan as a great example so if you look at if you a good analyst looking at taiwan in 1972 when the you know when this was being shaped would say wait a minute there's just the differences between these parties are irreconcilable For China, this is an integral part of China. For the U.S., there's a determination to let Taiwan be self-determining within the framework of a one-China policy and not to have use of military force by China to reintegrate it. So how can you resolve irresolvable differences? The answer is you can't. But can you manage them? Can you manage them in such a way that, on the one hand, China... Threatening Taiwan with military action if Taiwan should declare itself to be independent, which would be unacceptable to China. So that's on the one hand. And Taiwan and the U.S., or with U.S. support, uh, threatening that a Chinese military action against Taiwan would lead to a war, maybe even a war with the U.S., that would have catastrophic consequences for China's other ambitions. Could that be stable for, or at least sustainable for five decades? The answer is, well, it has been. So Henry would often uh, become fascinated by a problem when other analysts looking at it would say, well, the differences among these parties are so great that, you know, there's really uh, uh, nothing to do but just let things happen.
3: So. Kissinger was obviously a serious student of history, and he practiced what I think you've described in in, in your essay about him upon his death as applied history. How did that inform everything you just said? How did that inform his approach to these matters?
2: Henry, as Neil Ferguson and I wrote, uh, is sort of the model of a statesman as applied historian. And if you ask Henry how he tried to practice statecraft, as he explains in the introductory chapter to his book on leadership, it's by applying history. So as he said, following Thucydides' great line, you know, that basically as long as human beings are human beings, the future will more or less resemble the past, that the best source of insights— about what's happening today is the historical record of what's happened previously. But as Henry put it, history is not a cookbook. So it's not as if you look at, open the cookbook and you find the recipe and you, if you use three eggs and do this and do that, you can produce a souffle. No. In fact, it's the challenge for the statesman in each generation to identify which analogies are similarly sufficiently similar in which salient respects that they provide clues or illumination for what to do about the current situation so let me give a illustration from the ai piece that he and i wrote so if ai uh, offers the potential to basically have capabilities that could allow a substantial coercion of other powers and maybe even overwhelming them. Obviously, there'll be a powerful rivalry between the U.S. and China because the differences between their interests and values looking forward means that in every dimension in which either could have an advantage, they will seek it. So, Does that mean that, therefore, they're inevitably going to be caught up in an AI war? Well, we already saw this story once before. Uh, There were many people who in 1945 or 1950 or even 1960 said war, nuclear war between the US and the Soviet Union was inevitable because there was a risk of war, there were dangers of war, so war would be inevitable. But As we point out in the piece, we've just entered the 79th year without great power war. How was that possible? Can we learn lessons from that as we think about AI going forward? Secondly, if even though the U.S. and the Soviet Union were unalterable and irreconcilable rivals in the Cold War, did that mean that they didn't have any arenas in which they could share interest in? the nuclear realm? To which the answer is, well, no. Look and see here. If my first choice would be to be a nuclear monopolist, my second choice would be to be a nuclear duopolist. So the U.S. and the Soviet Union discovered a shared interest in not having nuclear weapons spread rapidly to other parties that could be dangerous as threats to each of them. Is there some analogy for that as you think about The spread of AI and AI models and the training of AI models, since at the current, in the current situation, only the US and China have the mass compute required for training major new large language models. Uh, Well, there's a similarity there. Could it be possible to have constraints on possible or potential destructive applications of AI? that even in which the methods in which they did that could be shared. Well, in the case of nuclear weapons, we discovered over time that uh, there was a risk that weapons would be used by accident or in an unauthorized fashion and developed what were called permissive action links or electronic locks. Well, were we interested in the Soviet Union having similar control of its own nuclear weapons, the government's, so that there couldn't be an unauthorized or accidental launch of nuclear weapons. Of course we were. And so was there then sharing in terms of conversations and even discussions of technologies for doing that? And could there be potential applications, or could that, could, that, could that analogy inform conversations between the U.S. and China now about how each of them are trying to prevent actors within their own society finding ways to apply AI that would have destructive applications. So basically, uh, Henry would start with a challenge and then he would go back into the library of history and his own understanding of history for analogs and precedents and then not imagine that there was a simplistic one-to-one cookbook application, but that nonetheless, by thinking about the prior cases, it was possible to find clues and insights and illumination for dealing with current challenges. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten... 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back you can get it removed once but they'll put it back and then delete me comes and takes it off again it's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams delete me sends you regular personalized privacy reports just like the ones i've been describing showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to me.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's me.com slash LAWFARE20 code LAWFARE20.
3: Kissinger is widely thought to be a realist and I wonder if you would accept that characterization and how would you... Compare his realism to say academic realist theories,
2: I think most of the discussion about realism and uh, versus idealism and uh, current day structural realism, I find it uh, largely confusing and and oversimplified. so Henry was a realist in the sense that he insisted on starting with the world as it is. And attempting to impact the dynamics of the world as it is, as he sought to make it closer to the world that he wished it would be, so I've actually uh, uh, wrote a little piece about how I thought he he embodied what what I would call the moral idealism of realism in the sense that realism for him was not just raw real politic, advancing the interests of a single state, but was about building a international security order in which that state could thrive, the US, uh, but while preventing catastrophic war. So I think the in the debate about Idealism versus realism, as I say, I think that tends to get uh, grossly oversimplified. Now, in the current academic debate about structural realism, there are people, and I think uh, Mearsheimer likes to fashion himself as the new Morgenthau, or sometimes Steve Walt is part of that community as well, in which there's a temptation to – or there's a – I think they tend to err on the side of – imagining that the structural realities will produce outcomes and are not susceptible to significant impact by strategic interventions. So, for example, at the end of the Cold War, Mearsheimer and Waltz said it was inevitable now that Germany and Japan and other states acquired nuclear arsenals because... Uh, the Cold War is over. The U.S. was no longer going to be prepared to shelter them under our nuclear umbrella because we didn't have an overriding threat from an adversary. And so uh, that was to be expected. And uh, I think Henry and others thought, yes, it will be a big stretch to continue to persuade Germany or South Korea that they're better off within the framework of the non-proliferation regime and better off depending on the American nuclear deterrent than they would be by pursuing their own nuclear weapons. But here we are again 30 years after the Cold War and we still have nine nuclear weapon states. Uh, indeed, if you look at the Mearsheimer-Walt uh, argument at the end of the Cold War, uh, for them NATO was over because NATO had been about making sure that the geopolitical or geoeconomic strength of Europe not be aligned against us, but be aligned with us against the Soviet Union. But I think if you look at NATO today, it looks uh, more vigorous than I've seen it, uh, you know, since the end of the Cold War. So I think the structural uh, realists or realism in general that Tends towards, I don't know, fatalism or or just letting things happen, underestimates the potential as- opportunities for strategic interventions that may make things more like what you would aspire for them to be.
3: So Kissinger seemed seemed obviously to be a lifelong learner, a lifelong reader. He was intellectually engaged for his whole adult life and enormously productive even in his 10th decade. Can you give us a flavor, and you worked with him a lot on a lot of his projects, can you give us a flavor of what it was like to work with him?
2: Well, the, the whole idea of a, of a mind that stayed that curious and engaged into, his, into the last year of his life uh, was astounding. I, I, uh, at one of the birthday parties, said that, you know, uh, he was extending our all of our conception of what could be a active intellectual life. And I mean, if you look at Henry, or if you look at Warren Buffett today, or Charlie Munger, his his partner who just recently died, there is no question that there is people living into their late nineties or even to 100, who stay intellectually active, engaged, uh, curious, uh, learning, and teaching. So about five years ago, uh, Henry became fascinated by AI. Uh, And when he first talked to me about it, you know, you could see his eyes light up and he was excited. I said, Henry, this is not your topic. You have no basis whatever in science and and technology. I mean, you're you're not a student of science, and science is a cumulative subject. I even teased him once. I said, "I don't think you could tell the difference between a computer chip and a potato chip." Uh, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, uh, so he he sensed that in AI something profound was happening, and he felt like he would he needed to learn about it." He'd understood he wasn't going to understand the science and technology of it very well. But he found his way to Eric Schmidt, the fellow who had been the chief executive officer of uh, Google, who had bought it from its uh, you know early days as a cause to being one of the great companies in the world. Eric had been early on, recognized the potential in AI. And Google had actually bought up a, a good portion of the, most, of the geniuses, pursuing AI at the frontier, including DeepMind, that you and I have been involved you know, in the discussion with Mustafa. So Eric is a very patient tutor. Henry kept trying to understand what is this going to mean for the Enlightenment, would be one version of it, or what is this going to mean for America, or for, for the idea of scientific thinking in which we have a hypothesis and look at evidence and on that basis draw conclusions. What what is it even going to mean for human beings as as what we call ourselves Homo Sapiens as the you know as the as the knowing uh, agent if there might be these minds or uh, things that are like minds that are machines and uh, he he didn't get caught up in the sci fi versions of this he got caught up in the uh, conceptualization to an extent that then. Ultimately, he and Eric and uh, the fellow who's the dean of the computer sciences at MIT now wrote a pretty good book on AI. And as Eric would say, and we did his, his fair part. For this article that was just published, uh, the Foreign Affairs piece a couple of months ago, we've been six months back and forth on this article. I think more than 20 drafts in which I would you know, think that we were done and he would uh, <laughs> do another version and he would then think we're done and I would say this didn't work. So we went back, forth, back, forth. He was very actively engaged with the with the whole thing. He then actually, the, the piece, in addition to trying to draw some lessons from the nuclear era that may provide some illum- illumination for providing somewhat similar constraints on AI, Uh, basically called for and was nudging the Biden-Xi summit that occurred at San Francisco. And uh, Henry had discussed this idea of having a serious discussion of AI and of constraints with Xi Jinping when he'd been in, in China, where he was in, I don't know, June or July. And so... He was actively involved, I mean, literally right to the last two weeks of his life in not only trying to think about these things, but to think about what could be done about them and even to be nudging policy in the relationship between the U.S. and China. And he was very pleased that the summit actually did occur and that at it, they did have some serious discussion of AI, and agreed to create a expert working group to explore further ways in which the two parties might cooperate in constraining AI. AI.
3: So let's turn to criticisms of Kissinger. So, what do you view as his greatest failures or mistakes? He had a long life; he must have
2: had some. He had he had plenty of uh, plenty of mistakes, and he he would allow that he did. Even though he he adopted this persona of uh, being somewhat haughty and uh, making fun of humility, pretending like he he was almost always correct, and I think that was in part. I mean, I, for me, that always, as I saw it, reflected his basic insecurity as a person who never got over and understandably never got over, having escaped from Nazism when he was a teenager and having uh, a dozen members of his, you know, family been killed in the Holocaust and having seen the collapse of, you know, the German government. And then this amazing uh, set of Opportunities that arose for him in the context of the u s so actually at his hundredth birthday party, the big party in New York, after an outpouring of commentary or you know comments by people, little short toasts in effect, telling him how much they appreciated him in the various domains of you know he he said well, and he was as close to speechless as I've ever seen him, but he said. He had been reflecting as he reached 100 and had concluded that he had been among the most fortunate people ever and had a most fortunate life in which he could think of more than 100 crossroads in which there was every reason to think that things should have gone badly for him and things went well. First was escaping from Nazism. Second was finding his way to the U.S., where even a Jew from, uh, from Nazi Germany could become accepted and be, you know, go to high school and graduate, and then magically somehow, or being enlisted in the army, but surviving uh, the Battle of the Bulge and uh, denazification, and then missed, sort of magically being, uh, through the G.A. bill, allowed to go to Harvard. And then one—I mean, succession after succession. So, I think the to begin with, realizing that there was underneath this both an insecurity and a appreciation of all the pieces of good fortune. But in the course of doing things, did he end up doing lots of things that, in retrospect, probably, if given a chance to do over, he might have done differently, or also. Uh, was he part of governments that made choices that turned out to be uh, mistaken, or also was he part of government where things that could one could imagine could have been done were not done? And I would say if you take the bombing of Cambodia or the uh, Chilean Allende or uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh, in every one of the cases— Indictments have been made and can be made of the choices. I think frequently the criticisms misunderstand the fact that he was working for a president. He was not the president. And for most of the period of time, he was subordinate to the president. When After Nixon got into great trouble and the impeachment was happening in the beginning of The Ford administration, maybe for the Yom Kippur War, he was pretty much the decider. But about Vietnam, he was not the decider. Uh, He had been part of a study group here at Harvard that had concluded, and he had concluded, uh, that the Vietnam War was unwinnable. When he and Nixon uh, went to Washington, there were 550,000 Americans in Vietnam fighting. And we were losing three or 400 people a week. And the country was being torn apart. Henry thought the objective was to extricate ourselves from Vietnam in the fastest way possible, but with the least damage to America's larger objectives in the world. Nixon thought the war was winnable and thought he was going to win the war. And Henry was working for Nixon. So... Uh, that's a long, complicated story in which I think uh, those that want to blame Henry primarily for the bombing of Cambodia or other mistakes made in Vietnam mainly have got the wrong target. I think in the course of all of this, did he give priority to American interests over the interests of other parties? Yes. Yes. And did he give priority to the interest of great power politics as they related to international order, as he saw it, and the absence or the prevention of large-scale war? Uh, Yes. So when trying to uh, manage the opening to China, which was part of a geopolitical move, both for extracting the U.S. from Vietnam and for Widening the gap between communist China and the mother church, Soviet Union, in the Soviet-Sino bloc, Pakistan was the pathway, and therefore uh, was given a pass in the campaign that it conducted in the essentially bloodbath over as as Bangladesh emerged. But again, was that something that? Actually, the U.S. could have caused to have come out differently. I'm not sure. Could we probably have figured out some way to have limited that? Maybe. And similarly, in the case of Aliende and uh, Chile, it wasn't Americans that overthrew him; It was the locals. Again, what actions could the U.S. have taken that would have produced a different outcome? I think particularly for, for critics that sit on the on the on the sideline and ask about sins of omission and imagine that if the US had simply done something, things would turn out different. They should ask themselves about what's happening in Gaza today, or what happened in the genocide in Rwanda, or what's happening in Yemen, or what's happening in the Central African Republic. I'm uh I understand I'm unduly uh Partial to my old professor, and uh, colleague, and friend, and probably don't give sufficient attention to the to the critics. I've never myself made a serious study of the particular indictments, and I thought Hitchens' piece was a you know a, a hatchet job of mostly cheap shots.
3: What is something important to understand about Kissinger that is not well known or understood about him?
2: I, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I would say I think it's important to understand that he actually uh, recognized that his life was a s- series of – over the course of his, his life, he won, in effect, a series of, of lotteries in which it was highly unlikely in each one of the cases, but in which – in a, in a truly American story, he lived an American dream. I mean, the idea that a a person could escape Nazism and find a way to the U.S. and be enrolled in a high school and, you know, sell shaving bushes on the side to keep himself together and then serve in the U.S. Army and therefore be part of that great generation, and then somehow get admitted to Harvard and then somehow become a faculty member and then somehow become a national security advisor. I mean, excuse me, I remember vividly he had been a protege of Nelson Rockefeller who was Nixon's rival for the Republican nomination in 1960. Henry had given many speeches against Nixon in that campaign and demeaning Nixon. So when Nixon invited him to the come down to the Pierre Hotel, he had no idea in hell what was going to happen. He thought he was actually going to get dressed down. And here he's asked to become national security advisor. So now a Jew becomes national security advisor for a president Who's very anti-Semitic and who, if you listen to the Nixon tapes, rants on with Haldeman and Ehrlichman about the danger of Jews and their, you know, trickery and whatever, whatever. So here he is in that environment, somehow survives and plays an important role in extricating the U.S. from Vietnam. And again, I mean, go chapter, chapter, chapter. So the fact that he appreciated uh, the U.S. and the opportunities that that had provided to him. And is kind of, in that sense, a model of what you would hope, you know, people in the world can grow up to be in, in an American dream, I think is a piece of him that's largely missed out, partly by the fact that he's, you know, celebrated uh, or criticized or that he appears to be kind of always having been Henry Kissinger as opposed to having been the result of this series of of successful lotteries.
3: Other than artificial intelligence, what was most on Kissinger's mind? What was he most worried about at the end of his life?
2: Great question. So He appreciated that the fact that we were entering the 79th year without great power war was historically anomalous. And uh, that the elements that had made that possible uh, included many, many close calls in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. But that now in the rivalry between the US and China, that the likelihood that this would end badly in a war and ultimately a, a world war was substantial and growing. And he didn't think it was necessary. He's not fatalistic, uh, but he was very realistic. And he couldn't find a way to – he kept stretching, looking for what he would call a strategic concept or framework that would make it possible for the U.S. and China to basically – he he called it co-evolve, co-evolution, or uh, compete, but nonetheless with sufficient communication and constraints to allow basically history to decide. So he was struggling for that. Uh, if you look at his book on China, or at the you know what he said after his summer meeting with with Xi Jinping. That was the issue he was continuing to struggle with and that's what he was most uh, worried about because he, grounded in history, realized, and I think most of us should take this more to heart, that there is something amazing about the fact that this is the 79th year without great power war and that that's not likely to be sustained in our lifetime unless we summon or mobilize The kind of strategic imagination that was applied by Henry and many other statesmen over the period of the past 79 years.
3: Graham Allison, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at www.lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell and your audio engineer was Noah Ma's band of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.